Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Welcome to GodPod 76. Graham Tomlin here, as usual, introducing this um, new edition of GodPod, which is a little bit different from normal. As you know, if you are a listener to our podcast, normally we have a few of us, our regular team, uh, holed up in a little room in London, uh, talking about theology and life and everything else. Uh, But this time we have something a bit different, and it emerges out of a conference that uh, we at St. Melitus College ran uh, a little while ago called The Holy Spirit in the World Today, Capturing the Imagination of the Culture. The idea of the conference was to bring together quite a few uh, academics, uh, along with a um, group of people um, listening to that, came from, coming from the church, from the academy, from other places, to think about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit helps us as Christians engage in this work of recapturing the imagination of the culture. The idea is basically that Christian faith once held the imagination of our culture, uh, but it no longer does that, and how might that happen again? And as part of this uh, conference, we did two panel discussions. And so this God Pod and the next are going to be recordings of those panel discussions that took place as part of the conference. And so this one, God Pod 75, is a discussion which took place on the first day of the conference. And it involves uh, myself. Uh, it involves uh, Steve Holmes, who was uh, one of our uh, speakers from St. Andrews University. It also includes uh, Julie Canlis who is the author of a very brilliant book on John Calvin called Calvin's Ladder. Uh, It also includes James Harding, um, who is one of our new tutors at St. Melitus College, started with us later on this year. And um, so what you're about to hear is the discussion that took place at the end of the second day of the conference on the Holy Spirit in the world today. And this came after two further keynote speech um, lectures. Uh, One was from uh, Dr. Julie Canlis, who gave a fascinating talk on culture, Christian identity, and the authenticity hoax. And her theme was looking at the uh, whole idea of authenticity within our culture, the whole idea of being true to yourself, and uh, analyzing that from a theological Christian point of view, and suggesting how the real calling of Christian faith is to be true to our own self in Christ, and true to Christ and his calling to us. And uh, so uh, that was the first keynote address of the day. The second was from uh, Dr. Steve Holmes from um, the uh, University of St. Andrews, who spoke about the under the title of The Cloud of Witnesses, The Spirit, the Saints, and Imagining Holiness in a Changing Culture. Steve's theme was that uh, what Im- captures the imagination of the culture is not so much ideas, but real tangible holiness. Uh, he spoke about how the early saints, the early monks, uh, had quite startling images of holiness. People like Simon Stylites, who spent most of his life on the top of a pillar, uh, living this um, life of prayer and devotion, which captured the imagination of the culture by its strangeness and by its uh, speaking to us, if, if you like, from another world. And uh, he was helping us and encouraging us to imagine what kind of holiness would capture the imagination of the culture today. So those were our two keynote speeches on the Friday, on the second day of the conference. And what you're about to hear is the panel discussion that took place after those talks. Uh, it includes uh, contributions from myself, from Chris Tilling, who's our tutor in New Testament uh, here at St. Melitus College, from Jane Williams, who you'll be familiar with if you uh, are a regular listener to GodPod, and also from Steve Holmes and Julie Canlis themselves. The questions were texted or tweeted in by the audience and uh, what you'll hear is the discussion that took place after that. So I hope you enjoy GodPod 76. Our panel this afternoon, uh, you will recognize many of them already, but um, we have, of course, Steve, Steve Holmes, uh, who has been with us for uh, the last couple of days and just given an excellent paper. Uh, there's Jane Williams. Um, many of you will know Jane as well. He's on our staff here at uh, St. Melitus College as a tutor in, in doctrine. And we have Julie, Julie Canlis, who spoke this morning. And we also have Chris Tilling, who is our uh, um, tutor in New Testament here 
in uh, St. Melitus. Um, I was conscious as we've been speaking, most of us who've done a lot of the speaking have been kind of systematicians or doctrine people um, who don't really know much about the Bible. Uh, so Chris does know quite a lot about the Bible. So uh, he's, he's a kind of proper biblical man. So um, we're, we're expecting a bit of biblical wisdom. Not that we haven't had biblical wisdom from the others, but, you know, um, specialist New Testament scholar, uh, expert on Pauline Christology. So we may get some um, things from that. And um, myself, of course, Graham Tomlin. So uh, one or two questions uh, from today. And uh, we, we may just have a chance to... Um, have a bit of an open mic session as well. So if you've got a question that you're really eager to ask and you've not had a chance to tw- text or tweet it through, um, do stick a hand in the air at some point during the, uh, uh, this session and we may be able to come to you uh, as well. Um, and these questions that I have here arise both out of Julie's talk and uh, Steve's today as well. And I, think, I think the first one probably um, uh, is, is mainly comes out of your talk, Julie, uh, this morning about authenticity. And the question is this, if authentic identity is only found in Christ, and to be found in Christ is to inhabit the concrete practices of the church, how can we avoid idolizing the church or leaving the believer vulnerable to an overbearing church? Um, is there the tendency to kind of subordinate the individual believer to the institution of the church so the, the believer becomes rather sort of overshadowed uh, by the church, its ministries, its, um, its um, institutional life, um, somehow, somehow kind of captive to it. Um, how would you respond to that question, Julie? I think what I'm trying to do is navigate a way between these two pitfalls, one which is to be so, well, is to just find your identity in Christ, which I fully believe is the only place we can find our identity, but then we stop there. And Actually, in the Bible, you know, as I've said, in the New Testament, people don't sit around thinking about if they're in Christ. They're actually being together in community. They're doing the sacraments. That's, that's how they express their being in Christ. So I think there's the pitfall, especially, and I think we're especially vulnerable to it, given where we are in society and with Western consciousness. I think we're particularly vulnerable to trying to be in Christ by ourselves. So I'm always wanting to drag in the church to just say, you, you know, you've got to be grounded. And it's not going to be ideal. It's not going to be pretty. It's It could be very boring, and it could even seem like not much is happening. Uh, but I don't want to then tell people, if you're just going to church, you're definitely in Christ. You know, I mean, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm just trying to walk this middle ground. So don't get lost. You, you can get lost in the institution, and you can get lost... As the book title said, finding yourself. Both are terrible ways to get lost. So it's this developing a spirituality of being in Christ and needing to be attentive to that and needing to, to grow that within us, but also not do it by yourself. And sometimes you have to just believe by faith that it is happening in when you don't feel it, which is for me as a stay-at-home mom, a lot of the time, you know, you just, you kind of feel like, wow, there's this huge mystery that I know I'm living, but I sure don't feel it for much of my year, you know, day in and day out. But I also think a lot of the reason why we're almost set up for failure is because of the way that we have spiritual formation in our teen years or our college years, which are so intense. And there are these mountaintop experiences. And in fact, they're called like the Passion Conference, or I mean, even the titles they're given just make me, bleh. and uh, and so you're set up to to feel like this is my one moment of really being passionate about God, and then I've got to just be normal for the next 364 days. But I think I'm just trying to make church more sacred. But I'm but I'm also not saying church will save you because church is very difficult, and my husband is the minister, and I'm the Sunday school teacher, and I'm sure I don't teach Sunday school that great, and I know from listening to his sermons that they're not always spot on, but I think I'm, I think I'm trying to say I hope your husband isn't listening to this. <laughs> that, that's, why I teach, that's why I teach Sunday school, so that we don't fight. You know, I don't go to church anymore. Um, but I, I think I'm just trying to say that um, if your church is an abusive, bad place, well, of course not. And talk to people uh, around you and and make sh- 
you know, find a place where it isn't abusive. However, I know church hoppers galore who at the first sign of something they don't like, it's time for them to leave. And that's the opposite of what Tom Greggs is calling us to. Church is where you go to learn how to get out of your own self. Church is where you learn to go and love other people. It's not about you feeling anything. This is, this is your, um, identity workshop in a sense. This is your praxis. This is how you, this is how you do it step by step. So I don't know if that covers it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I wonder sometimes whether there is a kind of interesting reciprocal relationship between the, the kind of, you know, the experiences you do have when they come from time to time, when there is a real spiritual kind of moment of encounter, of, of, of um, uh, a real sense of, sort of being taken outside yourself, that sort of ecstasy, as it were, that happens within the Christian life. Um, and if you like what you're describing, the, the kind of ordinary practices of being a Christian day by day. And I suspect the relationship... I mean, there's unhealthy and healthy ways of relating that. The unhealthy one, of course, is constantly seeking that spiritual high, that kind of shot of spiritual cocaine that kind of, you know, just keeps you kind of going. And, and so somehow feeling the rest of life is somehow inadequate because you're not living on this, this plane. But saying the relationship might be better conceived as saying that those experiences are, if you like, something of, a, um, of an incentive as an as a kind of inspiration to walk the path of Christ, to walk the path with others, of becoming like Christ, of being in Christ, growing in spiritual disciplines and faithfulness and character and gentleness and, and um, kindness and love, joy, peace and all the, 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 uh, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. And if it's seen as that kind of relationship, so, so these experiences are not, not to be shunned, but to be seen as a kind of catalyst for the real Christian life, the business of walking with Christ day by day, then they they can be they can be useful and valuable. Um, they're not they they can be unhelpful when they become a a kind of something that's, that's constantly striven for all the time. Um, anyone else to add on that one? I mean, the, this this thing about idolizing the church is there a danger? Sometimes we do that. There are some ecclesiologies that identify the church with the body of Christ so tightly that um, the church almost becomes identical with Christ, uh, and where you begin to wonder, well, is there a danger there of idolizing something, idolizing the church as opposed to Christ himself? So the church becomes the object of kind of devotion and worship as opposed to Christ. Is there a danger sometimes in ecclesiologies like that? Chris doesn't know the answer. <laughs> Jane. I, I mean, I think it's very interesting that, it, um, that all the traditions I know assume that you train people for ministry um, in community, uh, that we don't yet run uh, uh, ordination training courses on the internet because there are certain kinds of things you only learn about yourself and then usually the ones you don't want to know um, in community. Um, and, uh, and so you, you, when you talk about the church, what you're actually talking about is, this, is these people. Uh, and the minute you forget that's what you're talking about, then you're in real danger. You're talking about these real people that God has given you and who wouldn't be there, um, again, Tom said that in the paper, they wouldn't be there for any other reason except that um, we were all called together by God. Um, and, and that's um, a non-negotiable, I think, that, that interrelation with other people where you discover about yourself. Um, and, and it should be critical. It should be, um, you, you know, you shouldn't suppress all arguments uh, and... You certainly, I hope we don't have a, an idea of a, a church leader who um, we have to believe is always right. Uh, that's something that needs challenging by all of us who are not church leaders constantly. Especially those of you who are married to clergy. <laughs> Absolutely, it's part of one's. In fact, somebody did tell me when I married my husband, um, who is ordained. Um, <laughs> Slightly. Uh, that, she, that she thought it would be part of my calling to laugh at him from time to time, <laughs> which I've taken very seriously. I, I don't want to disagree with anything that's been said, but um, I, I do want to push into a, a, a slightly more, a, a slightly less just church as community account of ecclesiology. Uh, not because I think any of that's wrong, but because I think we also need to say some other things. There are lots of places I could go and um, 
find a community of people who are not like me. Uh, my village pub is absolutely fantastic for that. Um, uh, and occasionally I do go there and find a community of people who are not like me. Um, and uh, a church is, that there are certain intentionalities about church which are, and, and certain practices, which it seems to be a non-negotiable. Um, Julie took us to the reformers this morning and you know, if you ask the reformers what does it what does a church need to be to be an adequate place of Christian formation the answer comes back the word is preached and the sacraments are duly administered and that's uh, uh, if you ask a Scottish reformer church discipline is upheld but um, uh, but th but that seems to me to be saying something really very important that this is not just a place where where we gather in community and meet other people um, this is a place where um, we s we are called to sit under the word of God and the question of good preaching is not the question of is it funny is it inspiring um, are the jokes good is the oratory good the question of good preaching is um, is the preacher genuinely wrestling with the text that she has been given um, whether she's winning or losing is she genuinely wrestling with the text that she's been given um, and you know the question of the right administration of the sacraments isn't uh, how beautiful is your Eucharistic liturgy it's um, are you in breaking bread and, and sharing wine um, doing so recalling the passion of Christ and invoking the presence of the spirit that um, those present may be formed more into the body of Christ and and these are more than just being in community and I, we were Jane and I were talking, we, I don't know how many of you know this, we've been provided with a green room, which feels horribly hierarchical to me, but uh, um, Jane and I were talking in the green room downstairs, along with Jonathan Ross and other sofa inhabitants. <laughs> but, um, Was he there? Um, I'd have missed it. <laughs> yeah, 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 he didn't, uh, didn't give his paper there. <laughs> um, uh, about, um, and, 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 um, and Julie, about the way the Church of Scotland uh, trains its pastors and because there's a very strong Presbyterian commitment to an educated ministry they send their ministerial candidates to the old universities uh, St Andrews, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Glasgow say get get a really good theology degree from there and we'll do some formational stuff in other places and this feels to me disastrous not because my college is not a good community it's a great community actually I, I really enjoy being part of it but it's not an intentionally Christian community um, the word is not preached and the sac well and not at the heart of it and the sacraments are not duly celebrated and so it's not the right place for Christian formation Chris to drag the Apostle Paul kicking and screaming into this discussion actually there's a distinction that that uh, Pauline scholars make uh, between the church as uh, understood as a community and a church as understood as a collection of individuals. Neither is Pauline. Paul, Paul's churches are uh, intersubjective. People are individuals relating one to another. So to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. But precisely so... It is the body of Christ. And I think this is absolutely essential. I think Steve's point needs to be taken. This isn't just any old community. This is one that is the body of Christ. It is constituted by the presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, where Jesus Christ is acclaimed as Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. So I think the Trinitarian identity of God is absolutely integral to what it is to be church as well. I'm glad St. Paul made an appearance, finally, in our discussions. Um, not finally at all, he's been around. He's been lurking in the background, but explicitly there. Um, just to move on to another area, which I think picks up uh, some of uh, Francesca's comments yesterday morning, but I think been lurking around the discussion over the last couple of days. Um, and it's this question, if the natural imagination is illumined by the Holy Spirit, why is there not a greater explosion of art and literature amongst believers who have united the natural and supernatural imagination? That's a really good question, I think. If, um, if we've been thinking about imagining, uh, capturing the imagination of the culture and the idea of there being a kind of supernatural imagination, which is the, uh, the uh, idea that um, 
Francesca was talking about yesterday, why is there not more Christian art and literature? Um, Christian in the sense of, you know, art and literature by, by the Christian community, within the Christian community, and so on. Maybe there is. Maybe you just don't notice it. Um, Steve. I, I, I really think the simple answer is because we don't value excellence in those areas. Um, and I think it's a great tragedy that uh, we don't encourage our visual artists to use their gifts in the service of the church, and so they they drift away or, or, or don't do it. We um, we can discuss poetry and songwriting. I, I recall a friend of mine who edited one of the early charismatic songbooks who said every other letter he got said, the Holy Spirit gave me this, to which his standard reply was, I see where I wanted to get rid of it. But... Um, <laughs> but, um, but um, <laughs> But but we do not. Say, I, I mean, and, and and once we did. I mean, I mean, look look around the back here. Clean it up, tidy up the paint. <laughs> but but well, you know, once we did value beauty and, and value artistic excellence in all sorts of ways, uh, and at some point that stopped. Um, and uh, uh, and why it stopped and when it stopped would be a great study. But uh, yeah, is it something to do with Protestantism? The idea that the Protestantism was rather nervous about the idea of images of God? You know, there's possibly to a certain extent, although the way that works is quite subtle in history. So um, the, the first, you know, the first big debate you have on these lines, I guess, is icon, the iconoclastic controversy in 7th century, 8th century. Don't do dates. Anyway, quite early on in the East. Nice. And so the iconoclastic controversy is you've got into the practice of painting pictures of saints of Christ in your churches. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, you'll know Eastern Orthodox icons. Um, should this happen? Uh, no, it shouldn't because of the prohibition on graven images. They're all smashed apart from a few in the Sinai Desert, which are outside the empire. Then because of really good arguments about the incarnation advanced particularly by uh, Maximus the Confessor, um, they say, oh, that was a mistake, and start painting some new ones. Um, but the, the icon becomes a sacramental object, to use somebody's, I can't remember whose distinction from yesterday, James's distinction from yesterday, becomes a sacramental object. Um, and one of the effects of that is to really stunt the development of an artistic tradition. This object is kind of so holy that you can't experiment. There's a set of very, very carefully written rules as to how you paint an icon, and you, you, you follow them. Um, in the West, the religious art is, is far less associated with sacrament, and so there's far more freedom. And of course, then you get Calvinism, no art in the church, but what does that lead to? It leads to the explosion of... Um, uh, uh, of still life painting in the Netherlands in the in in the 16th century, where you know it kind of seems like two people on every street are are world class artists who now sell for millions, and so you you, you just move you, you move the art to a different place because it's not part of the religious devotion, but the art is still valued. I mean, what's happening in the Netherlands is you've got a bunch of deeply Christian people um, who aren't allowed to paint saints in churches and so paint bowls of fruit when they get home from church. Uh, uh, but that's valued. That, that, that beauty is valued. The, the, the place where it falls apart is when we stop valuing that beauty. Uh, I'm not sure you can quite blame Protestantism per se for that. I think it's, um, it, 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 it's, it's a broader or weirder cultural category. Julie? Uh, one thing that's interesting just about what Steve was saying, when Protestantism came and Calvin, for very good reasons, being quite uncomfortable with the way that some of the art or sculpture was functioning in the churches, uh, he actually didn't command the whitewashing. It only was um, in England where they began this systematic whitewashing. And interestingly, Zwingli, who's very much, you know, a dualist, he, he was okay with all the religious art in the churches uh, in Switzerland. But it was in England when, don't ask me which king decreed it, but they began whitewashing all the different... Um, uh, no, but it, well, okay, Cromwell. But one of the kings actually laid down the edict. 
you begin whitewashing all the churches, but something is allowed to be to put be put up in their place. And this is texts of scripture. So I've visited this tiny little church in Wales. And in this church in Wales, it's very interesting what scriptures have been picked. Uh, it's all about the divine right of kings, you know, the fact that people should be paying their taxes. <laughs> I thought, wow, how handy that these are the scriptures that they're putting on the walls here. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, and again, in the same church, the place where the altar was, the altar had been pushed, you know, to the back, and now there's a pulpit. So it is reflective of a tendency in Protestantism to be much more comfortable with the word. And I think that was a, quite an understandable reaction at the time. But again, it's something that we need to see as a cultural context and as part of what we grew out of, but is something that we might need to work really hard at beginning to give a good pneumatology and, I mean, just even arguments from the Incarnation, beginning to theologically value these and not make these places so taboo. And I think also, I mean, the other thing I think about the, the whole Protestant nervousness about the image, and particularly about the whitewashing of, of parish churches up and down um, England, I think the reason for that was not actually a, a, a kind of um, theoretical objection to art and to the image itself. It was actually that those pictures actually embodied a particular theology the Reformation wanted to undo. Uh, the primary image in most medieval churches uh, was actually the doom. It was Christ the judge, that you were reminded every time you went into the church that Jesus was the judge who stood over your life, weighing you up in the balance and uh, seeing whether you succeeded or failed. And it was the Reformation in some ways was trying to say, no, no, you know, Jesus is not ultimately our judge. He's our savior. He is the gracious one who, who is on our side. And I think that's the reason why they painted over the the the, um, uh, the images, and even the images of the saints um, who were sort of examples to follow, and you had to strive to be like them. I mean, it, it links in a little bit to what we were saying earlier on. But there's a kind of wrong way of thinking about saints: is you know, this is the standard you need to reach if you're going to be saved. And it was that whole ideology I think the reformers were trying to overcome, and that's why they painted over the the um, the images, not because there was an, an intrinsic objection to art. And I think if we understand that, then it enables us to begin to rediscover in both Protestant as well as Catholic parts of the church uh, a new kind of thinking about, about artistic endeavor and the value of it and the importance of it. And um, so I think you know, the, the question is a really helpful one in saying one of the things we need to do in terms of capturing the imagination of our culture is a rediscovery of the importance of art and literature and forms which uh, of expressing uh, faith indirectly, visually, verbally, narratively, and so on. Chris. The, a little pushback, I suppose, on, on some of this. I've been reading Robert Wilkins' uh, book, The First Thousand Years of Christianity. It's a fantastic little book, by the way. I highly recommend it. And, and in that, he argues that, uh, well, the, the church for the first few hundred years or so hadn't really developed its own artistic repertoire. It took a long time for this to develop. And in fact, what they did before is they would adopt the, the art and fashion that was in culture, and they would read it in such a way as to express their devotion. So, for example, there may have been a ring with a picture of a boat on it, and they would take that boat to be a symbol for the church. You know, or, or a little picture of the fish, ichthus. It wasn't until the catacombs and later that the artistic creativity started to find its own expression. Now, I think there's something to learn from this. And I, I do think we need to be patient. Uh, pushing for art uh, and creativity in this way cannot be rushed. I don't think it can be forced. The Holy Spirit was quite happy for it to be a few hundred years before this really took off. And there's nothing worse, I think, than, than, than art that's trying to be made in a Christian way, you know. So I, I think we need to handle this carefully. When it becomes genuine, then it's a natural outflow. I don't know what that looks like because I'm not an artist. Okay, one more question, then we'll throw it open to um, one or two from the, um, uh, the audience. Oh, Julie, yeah, carry on. Yeah. It was about 15 years ago, it was pointed out to me that the first time that it said that the Spirit descended upon someone in the Old Testament was an artist of the temple. So, I mean, if that's not a really Bezalel. wonderful yeah. um, inspiration or at least reminder that the Spirit is descending on us for multiple things, including beauty and art. Fantastic. Um, 
this, I guess, is one for you, Steve, um, arising out of your talk upon sanctity and saints. What is the difference between a saint, a celebrity, or a hero? And how will these distinctions inform and shape our imaginations? What does it mean to talk about saintliness or saints in a culture which is obsessed with celebrity and fame? Yeah, great question. Um, and what I was, I was trying to both maintain the distinction and spot that there is a degree of overlap between the celebrity or the hero who succeeds in capturing the imagination of the culture and the saint who succeeds in living a a, a profoundly authentic Christ-like life. Uh, now, it, it seems to me that there is an interesting point where somebody fits into both those categories. Uh, interesting not because we desperately need Christian celebrities, but interestingly because if the interesting because if the reason they uh, attain celebrity is precisely on grounds of the way they have succeeded in. Um, living out the imitation of Christ, then we've got something that's really powerful missiologically. We, we've, we've got a, a, a Christian practice that is capturing the imagination of the culture and that uh, can be grabbed hold of and, uh, and run with and can be really leveraged is a horrible term, but, 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 but can, can be um, something that can really help us in, in taking forward the the, the mission of Christ in the world. So, um, so uh, the celebrity or the hero is somebody who is admired by culture for some reason. The saint is somebody who is successfully um, reimagining the the practice of Christian living. But on the odd occasion, there's an overlap. There's there's something interesting and powerful. And is is there a danger in a kind of Christian celebrity culture? That kind of culture where certain people are kind of exalted and, you know, you'll see their picture on all the Christian magazines and <laughs> articles and interviews and so um, on. We, 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 I, I almost think there can't be because we spend so much time worrying about whether there's a danger of Christian celebrity <laughs> culture. But, uh, okay. um, yeah, but no, I, I mean, yes, of course there is. And, uh, and there is, there is a great danger that we, um, become of the world but not in it rather than being in the world but not of it and uh, a friend of mine who was very active in um, the Christian music industry in the saint in the states was um, would express deep worries about this having lived in that world for some years um, would say um, that their reading of what was going on was that that culture is aping all the tr forms of kind of uh, secular contemporary music culture, uh, but in a little Christian bubble. And so there's no interest in in sanctity. There's no interest in somebody's devotional life. Um, the, the interest is whether they're a good pin-up, whether the, the music fits the right style sort of thing. Yeah, uh, th there's a danger in that. But it, if somebody, and, uh, you know, pick your example, but, but, but if somebody is becomes known because um, the way they live out their Christian life is something that is authentically inspiring to folk in the church and outside of it. Is that a bad thing, that people are inspired to follow after Christ more nearly? Uh, I mean, all things can be perverted, but in itself I can't say it's a bad thing. Jane? I've just, I found this a very helpful question because it, it's... It's helping me get my head around something that I was thinking while you were talking, Steve, which is that um, there are different kinds of um, inspirations that people can offer us, aren't there? So there are heroes, and on the whole, they're not people that you think you're going to imitate. They're doing something you know is just completely beyond your capacity. Um, but you think it's wonderful, and you think... And you get a kind of sense of excitement that human beings can can do that kind of thing. Now, for me, the Olympics is like that. There's no way I'm ever, ever going to... I never, even, you know, 20 years ago, wouldn't have been able to do that kind of thing. So it's not that I'm... It's not that they're inspiring me to imitate them. They just make me proud that human beings can do that kind of thing. And therefore, it's enlargement of spirit in some sense. And I suspect that 
the, the Simeon Stylitis and people like that were a bit like that for their culture. Most people um, living their ordinary lives didn't think, gosh, I could go and sit on a pillar or stand on a pillar. Um, they thought, wow, it is possible to be so devoted to God that you're prepared to do that. How can I, in my own setting, work out how to do that? Um, and so this celebrity thing, it, again, you have to ask you the question, what's it actually doing to us? Is it making us think we're capable of more? Or is it making us just envious, thinking, I wish I could be that person, but there's no way I ever can? And they're very different effects, aren't they? Yeah, that's, that's very good. And okay, so let's, let's make another distinction between a celebrity and a hero. And, and say a hero is someone who enlarges the spirit like that. Um, and the, the worst of celebrity culture, and I mean, you know, know it with my own kids, you, you, you say to children of a certain age, what do you want to be? And they don't want to be a doctor. They don't even want to be a pop star or a football player. They want to be famous. Um, their biggest aspiration is an adjective. Um, and that, you know, and, and you can look round and, and you can, and let's not name any names because it would be judgmental, but you can, you can pick the people out and you think, are, are they famous for, for doing something, for achieving something, or are they famous for being famous? Uh, and that, that is, uh, there, there is very little good in that. <laughs> okay, want to see questions from the floor. We have one just down here. Microphone's coming around. My question is this. Um, what is the role of healings and miracles in capturing the imagination of our culture? Great question. What is the role of healings <laughs> and miracles in capturing the imagination <laughs> of the culture? I mean, just, just a quick comment while the rest of you think. <laughs> um, you just try me. I mean, thinking again back to the stories of the Desert Fathers that you were referring to this morning. See, there are a lot of miracle stories attached to them. Some of them um, really weird. <laughs> that you kind of think, mm, do I really believe that happened? But anyway. Um, but others, but enough to make you feel something remarkable was happening around these people. That the sort of sanctity, the holiness of these um, these people enabled certain things to happen that were not natural. And um, and even if you allow for a certain degree of exaggeration in some of the stories, uh, the miraculous uh, was a part of the, the witness of, uh, of these people to, to a different order. And uh, so it does seem to me, again, theologically, uh, miracles and, and healings are significant, not just for themselves, not just because it's kind of nice for someone to feel better or, you know, to have their... Um, the illness cured, but actually it's a sign of something else. It's a sign that points to the day when there will be no more sickness and crying and death. Um, so it's, 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 it's a significance that's, that's beyond itself. And to that extent, um, healings and miracles are, are part of bearing witness. Back to what I think Tom was saying in his talk yesterday, that the church's primary role is to bear witness to the the kingdom, and it does so not just by speaking and by, by, by words, but it does so by embodying a certain form of life, a different kind of polity than the world around it, the communities around it, but, but also um, in seeking, praying to God for healings, for miracles that, that give a glimpse of a different order, a different way of life, uh, uh, the kingdom that is to come. So it does mean that they, they do play sort of theologically throughout a significant role, but not just as a, a kind of, you know, look, look what I can do type um, miracle, but as a sign of something else. Yeah, I think the key for me there was that this is a part of the church's witness. The church is, is the body of Christ. There are different gifts, and, and Paul will list a number of different gifts. So it seems entirely reasonable to me that, that this is going to be a part of the function of the body of Christ. Uh, but so is helps and administration, a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, part of the witness to the powers and principalities. Uh, or, or teaching, uh, or leading. Um, and I, I think the danger, in certainly in many Christian cultures, is that the razzmatazz associated with healing or, or miracles becomes so hypnotizing. That's an inappropriate word here, but you know what I mean. It becomes the be-all and end-all that we then elevate such a person who's so gifted into hero role and, and then we want them to say things. But that's not where their gifting necessarily is. The minute they open their mouth, that's where things start to go wrong. And we're, a, 
with a body of Christ. So I think we need to allow for this beautiful diversity, which is itself evidence of the presence of the Spirit. You've just inspired me to write a letter to every person in administration and churches saying, you are taking on the powers and principalities through what you're doing. I mean, it's wonderful. I, I, I think there has to be a place for, especially in our culture, for miracles and healing, because we have a culture that doesn't believe God exists. And the encounter with the living God can be profoundly shocking for people when they can't explain what has happened, but they can't deny that something has. So I think it's it's really, really important. But I also think that, um, again, I was thinking while you were Steve, talking, Steve, about holiness and, um, and how much our um, Christian imaginations are still captured by our culture. And perhaps, you know, the greatest sign of holiness that we really don't want to be bothered with is exactly what Tom was talking about, which is people turned out towards each other. What would it do to the world if the Christian church actually lived like that? Um, uh, and, you know, um, miracles, yes, they have to happen, but actually working on living as though we believed God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and called us into that community, I think that would make it even more of a difference. I'm, a, I'm reminded by a, of a comment I remember reading some while ago. I think it was in a commentary by, I think it was Edward Schweitzer, the German um, biblical scholar, you said that a Christian community that has no ministry of healing is a spiritually impoverished community. That a Christian community in which the ministry of healing is center stage for effect is a spiritually endangered community. And I found that quite a helpful distinction. That actually in some ways the ministry of healing ought to be just a normal part of the Christian life. It's just you just get on with it. Of course what do you do when someone's sick? You pray for them. And um, every now and again God heals them in, in, a, in a very dramatic and direct way. And we don't make a big deal of it. We just say that's, that's what happens when God is involved in the Christian community. So um, we don't get so fixated upon it that it becomes the only uh, kind of means of displaying uh, the, the power and, 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 and glory of God. As Jane was saying, there are other ways of doing that, much more ordinary ways of doing that. Um, but at the same time, uh, when that's absent, when it's, it becomes a... a something that's not part of the normal Christian life, that we pray for healing and we expect healing, and something, is, something has been lost. There's a sense that um, something, a dimension of Christian life is, is missing. Steve? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's very right. And uh, as I'm you know, reflecting on some of the um, ancient narratives, the desert fathers and mothers, the, the, the medieval lives of the saints, th there's almost a sense that narratives of the miraculous do two things. One is... It's a moment of confirmation. Uh, is this person truly holy? Or are they a charlatan, a showman, a celebrity? Well, if God does a miracle in response to their prayers, then probably they're truly holy. So there's a confirmation. But, but then there's almost a, a deliberate effacing of the miraculous. If what you're really interested in is the miraculous, you've missed the point completely. Um, and, uh, Again and again, you find these stories where um, uh, the, the 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 miracle happens, but it's it, it's always pushed to one side. And no, what matters is that I'm telling you to repent, or what matters is that community is being built, or what matters is that the the, the sick are being tended, not not miraculously healed, but self-sacrificially tended. And uh, now. Uh, Jane's point is really interesting on that because, of course, these were communities where basically people did believe in God, and so you didn't need that witness testimony beyond the the authentication of the particular life. Um, and so it comes back to the kind of cultural specificity thing that I was pushing again, I guess. But uh, but where you've got, and maybe this is touching your point, Graham, you know, where you've got the community that knows that God exists there is this great danger of getting fixated on the spectacular uh, when that is fundamentally alien to the gospel. Um, at the heart of the gospel is not the spectacular, it is the, the, the willing self-sacrifice in the service of others. Thank you. Any other questions out there? Any one or two? No, one, just one in the middle there, yeah, okay. Hi, this is for Dr. Holmes. I was wondering, um, it struck me that when you talked about the saints, that 
it, it very much sounded like it was a sort of bottom-up veneration of individuals. When so often, especially in the medieval church and the Byzantine church, it was sort of a top-down phenomena where individuals were selected and, and really held up. And how do we do that if we are still doing this today, even if it's in an unofficial sense? Um, avoid choosing individuals who are used more sort of archetypes we should follow because they're culturally good. Um, like your use of uh, Beckett was very interesting. That It was a political reason he sort of held up and um, the martyrs of Cordoba and St. Demetrius and others are like that. So how do we make that distinction? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really good question and something I was very conscious that you can only do so much in the time that I wasn't touching on. Um, I, and I tried to address the question of um, the responsible assessment of claims of this is this is a life that is worthy of meditation and emulation. Of course, we are all fallible human beings. We get it wrong. Um, there's a, a line that you sometimes see banded around that, uh, I can't remember the precise dates, but between the 3rd and the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church did not canonize any woman who wasn't either a virgin or a queen. Uh, now, it's actually not true there is one Irish saint but the fact that <laughs> there's one Irish saint kind of um, makes the point um, that, uh, and and so there was, in, in my terms, it looks like there was a huge narrowing there of imagination that was a fundamental failure. And I mean, Elizabeth of Spalbach is not canonized. Julian of Norwich is not canonized. You know, we, we can go down the list of, of remarkable women um, who um, were, quotes, ignored, unquotes. Um, and... Um, uh, and, and so we can miss what God is doing, and at other times we can look at someone and say, isn't that wonderful, um, and, and be wrong about it. And we, we just have to be self-critical. So you know, my, uh, my instinct would be to resist a kind of formal, um, or at least a settled sanctoral. I mean, if you want a cycle of commemoration, then that's fine, but, but there should be a commission that every 20 years looks at it and checks over every name and said, hang on, were we really right there? Uh, were, I, were our eyes dazzled by something that, 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 that meant we were not looking at true holiness, but at, uh, 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 at something that was um, mere show or, or even something more, more dangerous and difficult than that? Yeah, so thank you. That's helpful. Any others? There's one more there in the middle, yeah. Jane alluded to leading by example. I wonder if the panel could maybe comment on practical ways for us to lead um, ministries, churches, etc., in this area of capturing the imagination of the culture. It relates to um, another question that came through earlier on. As uh, I think it was directed to Steve, you know, defining holiness in terms of ascetic practices or acts of justice. Uh, what other ways are there we, that we might discern? Holiness, we've thought of one uh, already, miracles and healing. That's another aspect of that. Are there other ways in which when we begin to imagine holiness uh, that that could be enacted in our churches corporately and individually? Okay, I mean, to pick that one up, um, my examples of ascetic practice and, and doing justice were practices that it seemed to me captured the imagination of two different cultures. Now, I certainly don't want to limit doing holiness to that. I mean, the whole point of the argument I was making is that there are not in principle any limits to what holiness, you know, it, it could occur in all sorts of areas that we just can't, uh, aren't. Well, um, I mean, I tend to think Bart's comments about Mozart were silly, but, you know, maybe they weren't. Maybe this is true holiness. <laughs> uh, although I'd hold out for Bach over Mozart. Um, but, uh, um, so, so uh, the, 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 I want to go to everywhere, but the question of how, how do you lead by example as a church leader? Um, I mean, it's a really hard question. And I, my, my feeling is that one, one part of the answer is if it doesn't hurt, you're probably not leading very well. There's a vulnerability in true Christian leadership, um, which means opening yourself to the people, which means being honest about your failings and, and taking the unjust, unfair criticism that comes from being honest about your failings. So there's a vulnerability. There's a... So, so, someone once said to me that leaders 
set ceilings and floors. And we, we've all kind of got a sense of the floor that, as a leader, you can kind of say, below this level you shall not fall, um, or I'll be on your case if you do. I think the ceiling's quite an interesting idea, that your own expectations and practices limit the level to which your people will reach. Um, and this is back to Jane's notion of the, the hero who expands our spirit. Now, this is not to say every leader ought to be a hero, but there ought to be, there ought to be that expectation that, that God can take us much higher, much further, much, much deeper. Um, <laughs> um, um, in, than, um, we've ever before expected. And if that kind of, that expectation, that almost dissatisfaction is not there, then that's probably a failure of leadership at some level. Um, Any other there. thoughts on how holiness might be imagined, Julie? I think I would bring it back to the leadership word. And I always have deep misgivings about the word leadership. <laughs> um, and I probably shouldn't, but it always makes me a little bit nervous because I feel like we're importing something um, that might set the agenda even of the questions differently. And I think I just want to come back to um, being in Christ. And the more that we can press into our identities in Christ, I actually think the more we will be transformed. And the more that, this, that we are conscious of the Spirit's work in us that way, uh, whether we are in a leadership position or not, that's actually what we should be doing as Christians. Now, I'm not very good at, about actually thinking, well, what sh should leaders be doing stuff above and beyond this? I actually don't think so. I, but I do think that leaders are tempted to lead a less personal existence because they are in charge of so many things. And I feel like Christian leaders, it is, um, it is God's call on us to be more personal, uh, more personal than we have been. And that, that is the transformation of of Christ and of the Spirit's work in us is to become more and more personal. Uh, and I mean that in the fully theological, you know, sense of being what it means to be a person in Christ and Christ as, as being a person and the persons of the Trinity. I mean, I think you, when I was saying that, I know I have a lot of theological baggage going on in my head, but I really do mean that that's tapping into who God is as well. And if in our lives, especially in this super high speed, super, you know, dominant business modeled world, which actually isn't very personal, I think we can lead only by being personal first and foremost. It's a great note to end our panel discussion. So um, thank you very much for all the questions that you've uh, put in. Um, thank you very much to our panel as well. We just express our appreciation to them. Well done. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.